Let's read from the Word of God, the book of Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, beginning in verse, chapter 6, verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, Aaron was the high priest, Moses' brother, Speak to Aaron and his sons, the other priests, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Now, what this is called, it says this blessing is sometimes called a benediction. A benediction means to pronounce a blessing on people. So ministers will frequently use this as the benediction at the end of a worship service. And I'm going to explain to you why. But also we're going to see that in the Bible, the opposite of being blessed by God is being cursed by God. If you're not in a position of grace, if you've not been saved by the grace of God, if you're still a rebel doing your own thing, then you can't take these words to yourself. You can't take the 23rd Psalm to yourself. And we're going to look upon how the opposite of blessing is, is cursing. One of the things I wanted to begin with is a question that thinking non-Christians ask and some thinking Christians ask is, you know, the Bible's a really old book. I mean, it's older than Pastor Martin. And how can I really get into a book that's really old, like 2,000 years is the most recent uh, portion of the Word of God, and parts of it go back 3,000 years or more, and why would I want to read an old book? And by definition, millennials and postmodern people say, well, if it's old and written down, it's completely irrelevant. That might be the case of merely human things, but God's the co-author of every book of the Bible, and God inspired every word, every book of the Bible. And the reason why we don't take the Word of God for granted, why we believe it still speaks to people who will listen, is first of all that uh, God hasn't changed, hasn't gotten old, hasn't gotten forgetful, hasn't gotten feeble, hasn't kind of slowed down and sits on the front porch of heaven in a rocking chair, just kind of watching the world go by. The same God that you see dealing with people in the Bible is the same God who lives and exists today. His character has not changed, his powers have not changed. God is God and forever God. Number two is human nature hasn't changed. Since the fall of our first parents contained in Genesis chapter 3, everybody you've ever met on this planet is a fallen human being. And whether you accept it or not, you're a fallen human being. It means that you do not occupy the place you once did as a person in a right relationship with God. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, as the representatives of the human race, they plunged the human race into an awful predicament. As one person said, you've never met a normal person. You can look around and you go, I get it. But no, it's not just the people in this room that aren't normal. Nobody's normal because we've all been bent and twisted and made different from what we were created to be by the fall of our first parents. By falling into sin, there's none righteous, no, not one. And so God hasn't changed. Human nature hasn't changed. And the third thing is God's curse or judgment upon sin hasn't changed. The threat of judgment still hangs over the head of everybody on this planet. It's appointed one, once for a man to die, and then comes judgment, Hebrews 9:27. The wages of sin is death. Everybody's going to die, from the youngest baby in this building to the oldest person in this building. We're all probably going to die unless the Lord Jesus should come back and intervene. 
But with that being true, that means that we need to do something about our sin. Just because God is, as men call time, 2,000 years older, but he's not 2,000 years older, he's eternal. He has the same vitality, the same values, the same hatred of sin, the same loathing and despising of sin, and sees it as cosmic rebellion. And he says, if you don't have a savior on judgment day, you'll be utterly undone, utterly undone. And so we need a savior if we are to face life and death. And I don't wanna wait till the end of my life in the hope that I might find repentance then, because I don't wanna live the rest of my life without Christ, without God being the one to direct my life. We need to have the provision of a savior and then one who will be the Lord of our life. So the Bible is an immediately relevant book. It speaks to you no matter who you are because you're a sinner. And it speaks to you in that you have the need of a savior and that it shows you how Christ is the only savior. With these things in mind, let's look at the passage here. And I'm gonna try to show you three things by the grace of God. First of all, I'm gonna show you the benediction that's involved in this passage. I said a benediction is a kind of blessing, but what does that mean? Number two, I'm gonna try to show you the implied malediction of this passage in Numbers. You go, what in the world is a malediction? Is that some big hairy theological word? No, we'll come back and look at that. It's not a big hairy theological word. It's a word of four syllables, malediction, but it doesn't mean it's a big hairy or hard to understand word. And finally, we're gonna see how does the benediction and the implied malediction here in the book of Numbers connect with our everyday lives. Do you have the benediction of God upon your life or are you under the malediction of God? First of all, let's clear some things up. What is a benediction? Okay, we read this passage. It says here that the Lord told Moses to tell his brother Aaron, who was the chief priest, to tell the other priest they were to pronounce this upon the people of God. A benediction is a declaration of God that his purpose and plan is to bless you, to keep you, to put his name upon you, so to speak, and to take care of you forever, that you're in a right relationship with him and he's committed to you. A benediction, like, is God's way of saying, you're mine and I will take care of you. Verse 27 says, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. God puts his brand name on you. You are chosen out of the world. You're not a worldling anymore. You're not a lost person. You belong to God. You are one of his chosen children. And as a result, he's put his brand on you. Now branding cattle is something we wouldn't want God to put a big Jesus Christ savior on one of our buttocks with a branding iron, would we? And yet there's other ways of branding. Corporations have things, have ideas in their way of marketing, which is called branding. For example, you go to the store and you tell your spouse, pick up some Kleenex. Well, Kleenex isn't not technically the name of the product, it's the name of the brand, but it's so become, in our brains, connected with toilet, toilet paper, the Kleenex is synonymous, or excuse me, with tissue paper. In the same way, I remember, I had an office manager one time and I said, I need to have this Xeroxed. He said, no, that's not true, you need to have it photocopied, we just happen to have a Xerox copier. But Xerox so, so sold its name, so to speak, its brand, that when you thought of photocopying, you thought of Xerox. That's a way of branding. God says, I'm putting my brand name on you. You are mine. You're not like the rest of the world anymore. They're going their own way. They're lost, they're confused, like sheep without a shepherd. I'm putting my brand upon you. 
by saving a people and calling them out of the mass of humanity and calling them to be his and to live his way. He's putting his brand name on them. Now look at two verses in the New Testament that have a benediction attached to them where God says, you're my special people. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or even think, according to his power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That's frequently used as a benediction also. God's putting his mark of blessing on us. It's not a good luck charm. It's not a talisman. It's not a rabbit's foot you rub before you leave the church. It's God's pronouncement to remind us we're his. We belong to him. One I used to use most frequently as a pastor was from the book of Jude at the end of the New Testament, verse 24 and 25. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to one day present you before the throne of his glory without any spot or wrinkle or blemish of sin and with exceedingly great joy be all glory, honor, power, and dominion before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. It's tremendously encouraging to be reminded of God's benediction, of his promise of blessing upon us. But there's more to it than that. Some of you may have heard of the Word of Faith movement. I hope you didn't grow up in it because it was a bypath meadow. But the Word of Faith movement was people on radio and TV who say that just by speaking words, you create reality. And God, and they make you as little gods. And God says things and creates reality. Well, as his children, all you have to do is say things and it becomes real. Now, I can pronounce my car a Rolls Royce all I want to, but it's still a Honda. And I can pronounce my house this, but it's still not a, a chateau or a mansion. In the eyes of these false teachers, human beings create reality by words they say. We don't have that power. God said, let there be light, and there was light. But I used to, when I lived in Southern California, I took my students sometime down to the beach where I lived in Newport Beach. And the Pacific's a lot bigger body of water than the Atlantic or the Gulf. The waves are a lot bigger. And so when six and eight foot breakers come in, I would have them stand in knee high water and say, put out your hand and command the breakers to stop. Stop waves, boom, they'd be blown back and we'd pick them up off the beach. They had no power to stop one set of breakers. But when Jesus Christ spoke to the storm on the Sea of Galilee, boom, all the clouds went away. The wind went away. There's no rolling waves, it's still. And it says that disciples who were scared, who woke him up because they were so scared, it says they, they were more scared. It uses an amplified form of the Greek word there. They were scared before. Jesus was scarier than the waves. Now, Sigmund Freud said that religion was invented by small little puny people who couldn't cope with reality, so they invented a God to help them. And so when you're facing scary things like storms, you pray to your God. But as R.C. Sproul said to Mr. Freud, you know, Mr. Freud, you don't invent a God who's scarier than the things he's supposed to be protecting you from. The disciples were more scared after Jesus stilled the storm than they were in the midst of this raging storm that they thought would take their lives. We have a God who does speak reality by words. We don't do that. And by pronouncing a benediction on the people, I'm not creating reality. I'm simply being a faithful messenger to tell you what God has already said, that he's committed to you and that he will take care of you 
and that you are his. So what's the particular blessing in this passage here? Well, I'm going to give you a little crash course on reading your English Bible more effectively before we begin. You know that there is Hebrew and Aramaic were the um, underlying languages of the Old Testament, mostly Hebrew, and the New Testament was Greek, and so you translate words from one language into another, and when it came to translating the words for God into English, they were trying to think of how to do it, and this goes back to the time of the King James translators. So for God's covenant name, that's the name he revealed to Moses, I am who I am, I have always existed, I will always exist, I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent me. Well, God, God said, that's my name that I reveal to my people. I'm in a covenant relationship with you. I will not let you go. So when that word is used in your English Bibles, every time you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, all caps, that means the underlying Hebrew word is Yahweh, or the name for God's covenant name, the sovereign covenant-keeping God. If the word for Lord is just capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d, that stands for the Hebrew word Adonai, which means master or king. And so we're looking at this passage right here and it says, and the Lord, it's all caps in verse 22. So that means it's Yahweh, the covenant keeping God, spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel and you shall say to them, the Lord, again, it's all caps, so this is the covenant-keeping, sovereign God. May he bless you. The next verse, verse 25. The Lord, look in your text, it's all caps. The sovereign, covenant-keeping God make his face to shine upon you. Verse 26. The Lord, all caps, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, he's saying that the covenant-keeping God, the sovereign God, who brings people into a relationship with him, is the one who is speaking. Now, what, what's he telling the people? What's the sovereign, covenant-keeping God telling his people? Well, look at the text. I've preached at churches before where you read the text that you're going to preach from. People close their Bibles. They sit back and they go, okay, man, wow me. Well, I don't have the gifts to wow you, but I can show you in the Bible that God has a real wow factor. And if you follow his word, it'll make you say, wow. Verse 24, 25, and 26 God says three things, and each one kind of builds on the last one. Verse 24, the Lord, the covenant-keeping God, bless you and keep you. He promises, he pledges to give each of his people a God-blessed life under his lordship. And then, to keep his people, what does it mean to be kept? Well, if you became a Christian on the idea that you could get your act together and keep it together and make it to heaven on your own, you don't understand biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is not a call for you to get your act together. It's a call for you to surrender yourself and submit to the sovereign grace of God in Christ who saves helpless people and keeps them and carries them all the way to glory. If you and I make it to glory, it's not because we're the brightest bulbs in God's pack. It's because God has kept us. We persevere in the Christian life because he perseveres with us and he preserves us. And yes, you don't lay in a hammock and go to heaven. Once he saves you, he wants you to cooperate with him. But the idea is I persevere and I make it because my great God had me by the hand. Jerry Bridges is known by some of you as a reformed author and he wrote a short autobiography and it has a sweet title, 
God took me by the hand. And he talks about his life as a Christian. He says, God took me by the hand. God kept me. And that's the promise of this verse, verse 24. But then 25 builds on it. Not only does he promise to bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. What does it mean for the Lord to make his face to shine upon you? Well, you, you know, children learn early in life, and dog whispers tell us that dogs read your face. You go, really? My dog reads my face? That's right. That's why if you look a dog in the eye, it's different than just vaguely doing something or threatening or yelling. Dogs look at your eyes and they look at your face. Well, children learn it too. If mom has a scowl on her face, uh-oh. If mom or dad is smiling and has a bright countenance toward you, that's a good thing. Good things are going to come. Dad comes home and he has a scowl toward me. I don't know. Mom, mom's here and she doesn't, doesn't have a scowl, but she has a bright face. In other words, a countenance is a way of showing what your attitude is toward that person. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. God is always disposed toward you. Have you ever watched, ever talked to a man or a woman who's holding a child? And the child is trying to get the parent's attention, but they're talking to you. And at a certain point, the kid takes his hands, clasps the parents like this, turns her head and says, I'm trying to talk to you. Listen to me. Now, that may not be something you want to teach your children to do. But this verse is saying that God has, you have God's attention. He's focused on you. His, his countenance is lifted up and smiling toward you. And he's going to be gracious to you. What does it mean to be gracious to you? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Every other religion in the world, bar none, go to university, take a class on comparative religions, read the scriptures, so to speak, of the other religions. And they're all about do, 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 do. They assume that if anybody's going to get to whatever they call the good place, you're just going to have to work yourself to death to get there. You're going to have to jump through all the hoops of that religion. Only biblical Christianity says, not do, 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 but done. God sends his son to rescue guilty sinners who can't save themselves. Jesus did not come as a great moral example. Jesus did not come merely as a great teacher to show you how to get your act together. Christ came to save you. And yes, he is our example, and he shows us how a person lives before his father in a life of holiness and righteousness. But his primary calling is not to be a model his primary calling is to be a savior. I need someone more than simply saying, this is what you ought to do, Steve. Because the Bible says, yes, I know what I ought to do, but I don't do it. And the things I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. Wretched man that I am, who's going to save me from this body of death, Paul says in Romans 7. Praise be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is a religion of grace. God saves sinners. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Is your self-conscious thought, even today as you're sitting here, that God is for you? That God has a smile on his face for you because of Christ, if you're a believer? That God has a smile toward you and is looking out for you because you're a believer? Not because of the kind of week you had or didn't have. Not because of the kind of month you had or didn't have. Not because of the kind of year you had or didn't have. But because he's God and he's gracious to sinners. It says it pleased God to give his grace to sinners. Why did God choose to save you or me? 
I don't know, but the Bible says it pleased him to do so. It was from nothing in us. I didn't earn his salvation. You didn't earn it. But by the grace of God, we are who we are. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And then the third promised blessing is in verse 26. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It implies some of the things of the last two verses. The Lord's looking at you. He's lifted up his countenance upon you. He's looking at you and he grants you peace. The only weakness here is that the word peace in our English Bibles is not the best translation of the underlying Hebrew word. And if you translated it literally, it'd be a small paragraph. Because it's the word shalom. If you've ever talked to someone from the Middle East, they've heard of the word shalom. Certainly modern Jews in Israel use the word shalom. Shalom doesn't mean peace as English speakers mean peace. If you say peace, it's the absence of, of war or cessation of hostilities. We were at war with Japan in World War II, but then we had a peace treaty signed on the deck of the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay, and there was no longer hostilities between Japan and the United States. We had reached peace. The cessation of hostilities. The war is over. That's not the whole meaning of the word shalom. Shalom means not only is, were we not at war, not only am I not against you, but I promise to give you everything that would make for the most abundant possible life in this world and the next. I will take care of everything that regards you. Shalom is total peace, total happiness, total blessing, as much bliss as you can experience this side of glory. So this blessing is the fact that the Lord will take care of you. He puts his name upon you. He's branded you, so to speak. He will look out for you. Nothing has happened in your life that he didn't plan out. And even if it was the hardest thing of your life and you cried for a week, he said, it's part of my good plan for your life. I will take care of you. You'll make it to heaven. Don't give up. Persevere because I have my eye upon you. I'm smiling toward you. I will take care of you. I will give you total shalom. Now that's either an idle promise, that's either a fairy tale, or it's in the Bible as the word of God. God has sworn to stand by his word. He says, I elevate my word above my own name. One of the worst things you can do and that I can do is to not believe God. Unbelief is a terrible sin. We think, well, rape, murder, genocide, all the other things, those are terrible sins, and they are. But the very worst sin is against the very heart of God, saying, I don't believe you. You are not trustworthy. You're not as good as your word. I can't bank on you. Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil not to believe God's word. No, that's not going to happen. Come on. He's keeping the good stuff with you. He knows that if you just rebel, your life would be enhanced. So don't believe him and don't obey him. Rebel and do your own thing. And then you'll be free like me. Maybe. And we have a whole world of people trying to be free, ruining themselves, ruining their families, ruining their marriages, ruining the planet. Rather, when we believe God and take him at his word, that pleases him and also our lives are different. We can have an anchor for our soul. You know what an anchor is? It's something you lower in the water from a boat so it doesn't drift. If you're caught in a current, it's good. Or if you're caught in a, a current out in the ocean, it's good to have a good anchor so you're not pulled along because you might find yourself crashing in some place you didn't want to. The word of God is meant to be an anchor for your soul. 
you can, you can bet your life upon the word of God. And you already are. None of you were alive to see Jesus Christ in the flesh. None of you heard the prophet Isaiah preach. None of you heard Jeremiah preach. None of you heard the apostle Paul. None of you saw David and his adventures. You're believing that this word of God is true. How do you know on judgment day that God is going to accept you? You have to go on what the word of God says. And if you come with Jesus Christ as your savior, all of your sins have been atoned for and Christ's righteousness has been credited to you. The only thing that God requires of you on judgment day is Jesus Christ. And you're betting your eternal destiny that the word of God is true. And you're not a fool to do so. The scripture says several times, you can look it up in a concordance, those who put their trust in him will never be put to shame. What does that mean? That means that when you stand up on judgment day and saying, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ alone, and all the angels start laughing and bend over, they're, oh, they're, they're laughing and they're pointing at you, look at that sucker, look at that fool, they believe the Bible. No, that's never gonna happen. The people who will be confounded, who will be embarrassed, who will be ashamed on Judgment Day is those people who may have heard the Bible, may have heard the gospel preached, did not believe it, believed their own senses, believed what their friends told them, would not believe the word of God, and on Judgment Day, they will be the ones who are ashamed. They are the ones who will be confounded. It's a great privilege for me as a pastor at the end of a service to stand up and pronounce the benediction that God has his name upon you, God has his eye upon you, and he will see to it that you make it through thick and thin. But I have to be faithful and tell you that along with this benediction, there's an implied malediction. Bena is a prefix that goes before diction. You're pronouncing something good, you're pronouncing a blessing. A malediction, you know, whether in Spanish or Latin or French, mala has, means bad. A malediction is to pronounce a bad thing. It's to pronounce a curse upon people. Not a curse like a hex, a curse like God's judgment upon these people. In God's revealing himself in the Bible, there are many places where he says, okay, this is true and the opposite of it is false. For example, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So sometimes it's stated explicitly, it's right there. You don't have to go, oh, I don't know what it means. It states it right there. Other times you have to do a little bit more thinking. For example, in the Beatitudes of Matthew's Gospel, chapter five, when Jesus is speaking about, these are the characteristics of the people who are already believers. This is not how you become a believer. These are characteristics of people who've already come into our saving relationship and we're in the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now the negative is also true, but it's not stated. Cursed are those who are self-satisfied or proud, for they shall not see heaven. Wow. Matthew chapter five, verse four. Blessed are those who mourn their sins, for they shall be comforted. That's a positive statement of blessing. But the implied negative is also true. Cursed are those who do not mourn their sins, for they shall not be comforted, but shall experience the wrath of God. You know, the very thing that the repenting sinner finds hard to believe is that God loves repenting sinners. It says, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. 
Get away from me, you sinner. Jesus never spoke to anybody who knew themselves to be a sinner. He never spoke to anybody that way. He only spoke harshly to self-righteous religious leaders who were full of themselves and thought they didn't need anything from God. He was gracious to repenting sinners. And the thing that we find hard to believe is that where a sin is shown to us and our heart's breaking, we've done it, we've committed it, God help me, God forgive me. And the last thing we would expect in feeling awful for our sin is that God would draw close to us. But that's the very thing he promises. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. A broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. What's, what's he saying? No, he draws close to that person. Illustration I like to use, I don't know if it'll track with all of you, but if you've ever played a sport and got the wind knocked out of you, one minute you're functioning, the next second you're lying on the ground sucking air and dirt and grass into your mouth, and your friends are saying, hey man, are you okay? And uh, uh, you can't say anything, you're just laying there. And mostly they just stand up and say, are you okay, man? And they just look at you laying there. But all of a sudden there's a man who puts his face down in the dirt and tries to find out what's wrong with you. That's usually the trainer, the guy who's responsibility for your health and well-being. It's a humble thing to put your face in the dirt to take care of somebody else, but I've seen trainers do that. Jesus doesn't despise repenting sinners. He draws close to repenting sinners. So in this passage here, God pronounces a judgment, a malediction upon people who aren't in a state of grace, who have rejected Christ, have no place of a savior. And let's look at this malediction now in the passage before us. Again, a malediction is God says, if you are not receiving my son and the blessings that come with him, then you're receiving my judgment upon you. So look at verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. Well, if you're not a believer, you can say, may the Lord curse you and abandon you forever. Wow. Verse 25. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That's the blessing if you're in Christ. But if you're not, may the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without mercy forever. Whoa, that's pretty grim. Verse 26. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace or shalom. That's what the promise is for those who are in Christ. But for the unrepentant unbeliever, may the Lord turn his back upon you and withhold all of his shalom from you. No goodness, no mercy, no happiness, no joy, no forgiveness of sins. I passed out something, or I had Dennis pass out something I call, it's called the anti-23rd Psalm. David Paulison is a well-known Christian counselor, head of the Christian Counseling Educational Foundation, CCEF. And he wrote this to communicate to a non-Christian, this is, this is your situation, this is the state you're in. I mailed it to one of my relatives who I had witnessed to before and they had always kind of blown off the gospel and they didn't need these things. This got their attention. If you're not a Christian, this is the psalm you can say tonight before you go to bed. We teach our children the 23rd Psalm, but for the unbeliever, this is the psalm they have to say. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. 
It's a jungle, I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert, I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still I insist, I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things work, ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think of that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling into a void? Jean-Paul Sartre said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then you die. My relative said this was not only the, the, where she was at, but she said most of the people where I work are in the same situation. If you want to make a photocopy of this, put it up on the bulletin board where you work and see what people think about it. To be under the malediction of God is ultimate misery and hopelessness because the ultimate withholding of God's blessings from you. The only attribute of God you will experience for eternity is his wrath. While, the, while believers experience all the positive attributes of God, the unbeliever does not go to a godless eternity. They go to an eternity overseen by God, but all they experience is his wrath. God turns his grace away from you and turns his loving attention away from you. God brings a curse upon you rather than a blessing. God withholds his hands of peace and protection and soul prosperity from you. This malediction is God's pronouncement of judgment upon you instead of grace. This is like the pronouncement of judgment and condemnation that God will pronounce upon unbelievers on Judgment Day. When God pronounces his malediction on Judgment Day against those who have rejected his, will, his grace, he will extend, their misery will extend beyond death and into eternity. The malediction goes on and on and on. How does all this apply to us today? How does this benediction for believers and implied malediction connect with people today? The reason why Christians can experience this, why a pastor can pray this at the end of a service and pronounce a blessing upon the people is not because they're better than other people. Like I said, Christianity is not a religion of works. It's not a relationship of try harder, do better, do more, etc. Christianity is a relationship of grace. God saves sinners who are sinners. Having said that, that God saves sinners who are sinners, the idea is that he blesses them for Christ's sake. I taught you in previous times with you the verses from 2 Corinthians 
God made him who knew no sin. God the Father made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to become sin. When did Jesus become sin? On the cross, he was judged in the place of all those he came to substitute for. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because if you read your whole Bible, he was being judged for the sins of all the people he came to represent. God made him who knew no sin, the perfectly sinless, righteous one, to become sin. Every vile, wicked thing you and I have ever thought or felt or wanted to do or kept from doing, wished we could do, actually did, whatever, all those sins were counted on Christ. And it says that, that's the last clause of that sentence, God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we... Paul's writing to the Corinthians. You read about the Corinthians in the book of Acts. There's like living in Vegas or parts of San Francisco or parts of Dallas-Fort Worth. These are notorious sinners in the Corinthians. And he says that we, you believing Corinthians, me, Paul, a Jew, you Gentile Corinthians, all of us sinners, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. My sins are counted on Christ and his perfect life and perfect record of righteousness, of obeying his Father 24-7, 365, every millisecond of his earthly life, is counted to the believing sinner in place of our terrible record. The holy justice of God was satisfied. There is not one sin for any believer that Christ did not atone for. And do not be mistaken... Every sin ever committed in the history of the world will be judged. It'll either be judged on an unrepentant sinner who never repents, who never lays down their arms of rebellion, who never submits to Christ, who never trusts in Christ, and these people will pay for their sins for eternity in hell. But for those who turn to Christ, they will discover that Christ has already atoned for their sins. He paid the price for their sins. Tetelestai, it is finished, were his last words on the cross. The same words you'd write on a bill of payment if you were buying something on time. The same things they'd stamp on your writ or certificate when you were serving a prison sentence. You finally paid off your last debt to society. They'd stamp Tetelestai, paid in full, and give it to you. That's what Jesus did on the cross. The holy justice of God was satisfied. There is not a tiny smidgen of anger of God toward any believer. It's not going on right now, but just a couple of weeks ago in the midst of the summer, there were terrible forest fires going on in California in parts of the Southwest. And there were some fires around the metropolitan area here in Dallas-Fort Worth. There were fires in Canada last year that one threatened a whole city and a city of 80,000 had to be evacuated because they couldn't stop this raging fire from coming across the city. And forest fires can be devastating, much different to fight than a house fire. And about five years ago in Arizona, 19 forest fire fighters were killed when the, the, the flames changed direction, the winds changed direction, and that which was going one direction came their way. And even though they had some makeshift kind of things, you know, they give firefighters what are called special thermal blankets. You wrap these things around with the Outside, it's meant to reflect flames and heat, and you lie in a depression or a ditch and hope it goes over you quickly. But if the fires, as this you know, 3,000 degree fire or 2,000 degree fire goes by, 
It burns up all the oxygen. And even if you're not seared and scorched by the flames, you die because there's no oxygen to breathe. They suffocate. 19 forest fire fighters were killed in Arizona just five years ago. But if you were out in the woods hiking and you had word of a forest fire, there is only one place you can ever run to that you'll be perfectly, absolutely safe. A burned over area. Why? Because there's nothing to combust. You know, combustibles are things that burn up. And if the forest fire has already gone through and burned everything up, then it's just this black charred area. So where do you want to run to? The middle of the black charred area. Why? Because there's nothing combustible there. The forest fire won't consume you. When it comes to the wrath of God, where's the only place on the planet that you can run to safely? The cross of Christ. All of God's anger was poured out on Christ on the cross. There's not one smidgen, not one hot coal of God's anger. Now, I use this illustration often because it perfectly illustrates where we're coming from. But living in Georgia most of my adult life, Georgia's covered with trees. I jokingly say, in Texas, you can see the tornado coming from 25 miles away. But in Atlanta, you have to wait till it comes over the top of the pine trees, and then you can see the tornado. Well, if you want to have a house or a yard, you clear out trees. And that means big piles of lumber. And one time I had a pile 10 feet wide by 10 feet high by 20 feet long, and I threw some tires up there, and I used kerosene. I was going to do it right. In fact, I was doing it so right that the firemen drove down the street checking out what in the world this crazy man was doing. And it burned up, and that entire pile, 10 feet by 10 feet by 20 feet, was gone. It was just gone. It was just a, just a little layer of white ashes on the ground. Now, if one of the children here said, you know, I'm going to go run across those ashes in my bare feet because the fire is out. The parents would go, no, you want to wait because though you can't see them in those ashes, there's still some hot coals. And if you stepped on them, you'd get a huge welt to burn, a bad burn on the bottom of your foot. That's not like the cross of Christ. There are no hot coals of God's anger toward you because you still haven't graduated to be a sinless person. You still give in to sin, and God's just tired of your sin. So there's a couple of hot coals glowing in the ashes of what Christ did. That's not what the Bible teaches. We are forgiven all of our sins in Christ Jesus. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is not a fairy tale. This is the gospel. This is the word of God. Are you in a state of grace today? Is God pronouncing the benediction upon you, even as I've been preaching to you? Or if you're outside of Christ, does that mean, that, which it does, that he's pronouncing the malediction upon your head? The official pronouncement of the curse of judgment and the reality that he's not looking out for you, you're not his, he's not going to make your life any better. Good luck with that, Jack. Is God pronouncing the benediction upon you today because you turned from your sins and trusted in Christ and are trusting him? Or are you still in a place of self-will and singing the number one song in the jukebox of hell, I did it my way? May God give you the grace to trust in Christ. And at the end of the service, I've, I think I've asked Josh that he's going to read this benediction and pronounce it upon the people. And you can rejoice today as you go home because God says that I want to bless you. I'm going to keep you. My name's upon you and my reputation goes with you so I will see to it that you get there. 
and I don't welsh on my promises, and every one of my promises are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. You will make it to heaven. You will be an adornment to Christ. Your sins have all been blotted out. I will take away the, your sin nature and give you a new resurrection body, and that which you can hardly believe will finally come true. God bless you. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I thank you that there are things in the Bible which are so Sometimes we read them and we just don't think about them. There's a profundity underlying their simplicity. Thank you that you have said that you will bless us and keep us, that you will making your face to shine upon us, that you're being gracious to us, you're not dealing with us according to our sins, but according to your grace, and that your countenance is lifted up upon us and you will give us total shalom. Thank you that this is in the word of God. Thank you that you are trustworthy. To you be all praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.